Welcome to the Brick and Mortar Reborn podcast, the show designed to help you keep a pulse on the fast-changing world of brick and mortar. As the world reopens and operators race to meet the rising expectations and demands of experience-driven post-COVID consumers, it's more important than ever to stay ahead of the curve and understand the trends and technologies that will shape the future. In each episode, we'll interview successful operators, subject matter experts, and leading thought leaders who will share their insight to help you prepare yourself and your organization for what lies ahead. Here's your host, Bobby Marhamat, CEO of Radiant. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Keitha Herzog, who's the Chief Retail Analyst at Doniger Toby and Data Catalyst Institute Fellow. Keitha, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I know things can get really busy, so appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your expertise with our listeners. I'm always happy to opine on retail, whether it's asked for or not. <laughs> awesome. So Heather, tell us a little bit about yourself to start off. Well, Bobby, I'm a futurist. I like to call myself a futurist. I've been in the retail industry for about 14 or 15 years covering brick and mortar, big box stores. I actually started out in journalism. I was a writer for Forbes. And then I morphed that job into a contributor gig at CNBC. And then I became a broadcast news correspondent at Bloomberg Television. But then I decided to go into buy-side research and started my own company. And that quickly morphed into doing more retail research for registered investment advisors. And now, after writing a book and being on television for a very long time, I am the chief retail analyst over at Doniger Toby and, of course, a research fellow over at the Data Catalyst Institute. It's lots going on over in my world, Bobby. Lots going on. <laughs> Well, as long as you enjoy it, that's great. It seems like you really enjoy retail. So that's awesome. I live for it. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about uh, Doniger Toby. You know, this company has been around. It was established by Abby Doniger's father about 75 years ago. And it's really interesting because they merged with the Toby Report. And when you go into the offices, there are very organized stacks and shelves of the report that has been around literally for almost a century. So if you ever wanted to get any sort of insights on what the retail industry was doing 50 years ago, 60 years ago, you could just pull from those reports. And what I love so much about this company is that because it has such historical roots in retail and you can go and look at what was being reported back then, you realize, especially with retail, is that history repeats itself. I'll give you this very quick example. It was during the holiday season and we were talking about experiential marketing uh, with dealers. And this seemed like a new concept, especially I live here in New York City and there's a Nordstrom, the flagship stores in Columbus Circle and the men's section of Nordstrom, uh, the men's store is very experiential. Men could go in there, get a drink, shop, watch a game. You know, this is being very male demographic centric. Obviously, it's the men's store. And I was talking about this. And Leslie Guys, who was my boss, said, hey, you know what? It's kind of like what Saks did in 1938 when they had a ski slope put into the flagship store. People could actually go skiing with the intention and they would be able to sell more skiing clothes that they were trying to put out on the floor and market. So it was very interesting to get that perspective. And it's what I love most about Doniger Toby. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. You've definitely been in the retail industry and you have a love for retail for many years now. What's exciting for you uh, in the space and kind of how that space has transformed over the, the last couple of years? I tell everyone when I talk about retail is that it seems like an ongoing soap opera and not in the dramatic sense. Although if you, I'm sure if you took specific situations, it could be pretty dramatic. But I love that it changes every single day. There's always a news story, whether we're seeing executive switches or we're seeing earnings come out or a new product come out or just the evolution of the way the consumer spends. When I was six years old, seven years old, eight years old, people would ask me what I wanted to do when I was growing up. And I said, I want to live in a mall and stay there and just hang out. And that's exactly what I do every single day. Um, people that believe me, but I know the Paramus Mall, like the back of my hand. Uh, <laughs> it's true. You know, there's always a different story with retail. And I think business in general, when you're covering business news, there's always a new angle to the story. But retail specifically, there's so many different industries that are evolving within retail. You know, for example, I wrote a book on the black market. And even that industry has changed within the 10 years that I wrote Black Market Billion. So there's always a story and there's always an angle and there's always something interesting to talk about. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that what's exciting in the, in the space is is what you said. There's a lot of change, you know, for the better in most most cases. And and as we've seen really the industry morph, especially during COVID days, a lot of good has come out of the use of technology in retail and different things that that we're seeing kind of take retail to the next level, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. The evolution is very, very important. And I think that once retailers and the decision makers within retail understand that process and get on board, and instead of seeing their flagship stores or their brands, I always compare it some... I'm not going to call out any names, but I do see some brands that really remind me of the cruise ships that are trying to get down the Hudson River that are... Mm -hmm at a snail's pace. And I think that the retailers that understand innovation and can move very quickly and be agile are the ones that are going to be winning out in the long term. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you've done a lot of research. Of course, we've seen there's talks about how the consumer has changed over the last few years. How would you describe the modern consumer today? I think... You know, and I'm going to rely on some of the Doniger Toby research here. We just came out with a report called Inflation Influences. And this is very interesting. The changing behaviors of the consumer is key. And I'm going to point to, it's very funny, a New York Times article that talked about how coexisting in apartments are now becoming a thing. And I read this, and I think a lot of people on Twitter read this too and thought, oh, you mean having a roommate? New York Times finally got on board with having a roommate, especially here in New York City. But I think that those people really are realizing that we may be on a brink of a recession if not, you know, if we aren't in one already. I think the Federal Reserve just announced that we are pretty much in one. But I think we're seeing the consumer respond to that. They're starting to cohabitate more. They're starting to home cook a lot more. You're seeing that rise of the home cook on TikTok, this upcycle fashion. People are starting to go to flea markets more and look to how to reuse and recycle their clothing. We're seeing a lot of anti-capitalist attitudes happen. And really, too, a focus on small business. So I came across the statistic as I was doing my research and it was that 44% of small businesses in the United States generate and fuel the economic activity here. So 
if you think about that and you think about how small businesses are making their money and how they are trying to get customers, there are five different methodologies that they're doing. And what I thought was really surprising, we did this, this is part of my fellowship at Data Catalyst Institute, but we did this report on rural small business sellers. And what I thought was so interesting, Bobby, was that rural sellers, these small businesses are making a lot of their revenues through brick and mortar. I thought it was the opposite. I thought that we were going to see a rise of revenue through online. Online is very important. And so are these other online markets such as Amazon and Etsy. But brick and mortar is so key. And I think it goes to the opposite narrative of brick and mortar is that it's actually not, especially with small businesses and rural small businesses. And if you are seeing, if you are looking to small business as part of the generation of the economic activity in this country, we have to pay attention to that statistic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you said that because, you know, it's interesting Yeah, as we were going through the pandemic, some people were making you know, drastic shifts and, and cutting down store store locations and, you know, et cetera, and really kind of investing those dollars in online. Well, I think online is super important and, you know, being able to transact however a consumer wants to wants to transact with a brand is super important. You know, what's been seen here over the last six months is a lot, some of those dollars have shifted back. Actually, about our last study, about 8% of those dollars have shifted back to brick and mortar and people wanting really to visit stores and touch things and, and want that experience with a brand. Commodities you can buy all day online, but I think, you know, for that brand experience, you get that full brand experience, having that complement on the brick and mortar side is, is super, super important. Especially those rural destinations too, you know, as we were seeing back out and travel. Now we saw last weekend with the complete travel snafu of 3000 flights being canceled. But once we start seeing people go back out to these rural destinations and these shops that are brick and mortar that focus on local product for those tourists that are coming in, this is where we start seeing the revenue really being generated. And you're absolutely correct. We cannot forget about brick and mortar. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you said yourself, you wrote a book in, in 2011. Uh, congrats, by the way, on publishing that. that. That's great. As you kind of you know wrote that book and shared your knowledge with your readers, if you will, how have you seen some of those problems? You actually brought this up that you know that's even some of the research that you did in that book has evolved. What has evolved and uh, what have you seen kind of be different since, since the time that you published that book? It's really interesting. When I wrote that book and 2011, came out in 2011, but I really started doing the research and writing it in 2009 and 2010. And even the way that consumers shop. So back then, the black market really was contained to marketplaces like eBay and third-party Amazon. You know, there were issues there. The discussions were really about how these online sites were going to contain that. And that was a really big deal. Also, flea markets and, you know, just stolen goods that are being sold out into you know, just basically online. We didn't really have the rise of Twitter yet. And Facebook was just sort of getting started. But now, because technology has evolved so much, and there are so many different platforms, not just social media, but so many different marketplaces that people can obtain product, that it's just become so much more vast. And we are now talking about Web3 and doing things in the dark web. So there are all these other layers of being able to get product that may or may not be stolen or counterfeit. But I do want to add what is also really great about technology. While there's this proliferation of different types of websites that people can get this you know, illicit product... 
there is also blockchain that is emerging where you can track and have some sort of provenance of where your product is being sold. And I think that is so promising. When I started really doing research on it, I thought, well, here is a solution. And I've been researching this now for almost 12, 13 years. Here's a solution that I can really get behind. It makes sense to me where you could see the provenance of where this product is going, especially with the luxury retailers. I know that blockchain is iffy. People don't really understand it. But I think in the next five to six years, we're going to start seeing a lot of these retailers, luxury retailers. Luxury retailers are already getting on board you know, with NFTs and being able to see that. That's one iteration of it. But I think we're really going to start seeing not just luxury retailers, but all kinds of retailers, big box, mom and pop. It's just a matter of understanding that technology in order to trace that product. Absolutely. As you were writing the book, you know, of course, a lot of a lot has to do with the black market. What do retailers need to know about the black market? Well, first, I want to say that the loss prevention groups within retailers, the management, the loss prevention management are doing an unbelievably outstanding job trying to manage, trying to educate and within the retailers of what a big problem this is. Where I think the disconnect is, is that upper management of retailers and we're talking, you know, department stores, brands, big box stores are not really listening to what the loss prevention community and the staff within their retailers are saying. Not to say that they're completely ignoring them, but I think they need to listen a little bit more and really understand it because this is very important. At this point, retailers just have a, a line item in the balance sheet, you know, for loss prevention. Oh, we just, you know, that got stolen, whatever, it's fine. But I think, especially now, as the economy is losing its footing a little and the focus is going to be on retailers and what those earnings are, they really need to start listening to the loss prevention community and their executives because there's so much that is going on. And when the upper management can make decisions on behalf of preventing loss, that's really just going to be extra revenue for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have any advice and how retailers can really play a role in battling the kind of criminals in that black market? Again, I think retailers are doing so much within their own environments to try to prevent loss prevention. As we saw a couple of months ago, we saw this whole onslaught of smash and grab theft that was going on. And it was getting a lot of attention in the news. And, you know, it's been happening for years. I mean, decades even since I've been covering this. But I think one thing that retailers could do in conjunction with their loss prevention executives is to have conversations with government entities. Uh, And I'm not talking about write a letter to the president, although if you want to do that, (laughs) great. Uh, (laughs) Or even just have a conversation with your congresswoman or, or, or man. But I think it's more understanding what your local police department can do and how they can help. There are organizations within cities. Los Angeles is one that I worked with for my book, but La Orca, this organization really works with retailers and the LAPD to create a system, a digitized system, so that there is accountability and information and ideas exchanges. And there's a national ORCA 
<laughs> that exists that a lot of smaller cities are getting involved in. I know that Albuquerque, which is my hometown, has a chapter of this national organization where retailers can have conversations with local police departments, but also mayors, you know, get involved with your mayor's office. It starts locally. And I think once we start locally trying to protect the stores in those cities, then it becomes a national effort and more funds will go to that and stores will be more protected. And let's be honest, it just becomes down to revenue as well. It just means more revenue for those stores. Oh, absolutely. One of the questions that comes up a lot from retailers is, you know, we've, as we've been able to kind of survive the pandemic days or come up with really what I think, you know, was was most important during this time was that convergence of online, offline, and really getting to contact your customer, be in contact with your customer, let them know what's happening, you know, create different paths for them to be able to transact with you. And so the retailers that have kind of gone through those times now, I want to say, hopefully the end of COVID here, or getting to the end of COVID, you know, as they think about, you know, thriving again, opening more locations or more selections, et cetera. What is some advice that you have for retailers? I think the conversation with the consumers has been one of the benefits of this horrible season of COVID for retail. I think it has really built communities. But what I really think is going to make retailers stand out and win ultimately is if they can understand how to process returns in an efficient way that doesn't eat into their bottom lines. I'm telling you, Bobby, this is the new thing. If a retailer or a technology company can somehow automate the return process, because as we're seeing too, we're talking about the consumer trends and how the consumer is doing things differently. The consumer, while brick and mortar is great and very much thriving for rural small businesses, there's still a very large swath of the consumer that is doing everything online. Once retailers who do get most of their revenues from online orders, once they could figure out how to make that return process easier, it'll not only benefit the consumer, but it'll benefit them. And it will equate to a more loyal customer base. So it's all about the returns, Bobby. I want to write a piece about it. I'm obsessed. (laughs) Mostly because I am looking at a stack of boxes that I need to return. And I just am doing the math in my head. I mean, we're talking about thousands of dollars of returns that is just sitting in my corner and the deadline is approaching. And if I have thousands of dollars of returns, I'm sure there are more consumers out there with the same amount, if not more even, or maybe even less, but there's certainly returns. That's going to be key. Absolutely. I think logistics on returns is one of them. I think the convergence definitely of you know being able to again transact either online or in the store locations, however you want with a brand, I think is another kind of big trend that we're we're probably going to see here over the next few years for brands to you know really bring that experience, whether they're bringing the information into the store environment for people to make better decisions or they're allowing people to transact, you know, look at something in store, go home, think about it, and still transact with like a unified shopping cart or whatever the case may be. I think those are going to be trends that we'll definitely see as well. As you're thinking about kind of the future of brick and mortar, and you're thinking about the future of retail, what are some things that are, you know, top of mind that you want to learn more about that you think are going to be, you know, trends that we're going to see kind of in the industry over the next few years? Well, I know a lot of people, and by a lot of people, I'm talking about everyone at Shop Talk a couple months ago. We were all talking about the metaverse and Web3. And I was on a consulting project where I was consulting for 
a gaming company where they were incorporating a lot of metaverse type fashion brands into their land sales. And if this sounds all very foreign to the listener, hit Bobby or I up and we can explain (laughs) what land sales are in the metaverse. But what I think is really interesting is that convergence you know, we aren't all of a sudden going to live through our avatars next year. That's not going to happen. But what does retail look like when we start utilizing the metaverse? Will we be able to live in another environment, order things, and then pick up offline? Um, will it make this process of purchasing items with your, to your point, the universal shopping cart? Is that going to become easier and more universal, more seamless? And will we be able to do returns more seamlessly with the onslaught of the metaverse and Web3? What does this all look like? In fact, we were talking about the metaverse in March in Las Vegas, but you know we're now three months past that. We're probably past that now. So what does Web4 look like? What, like, what does this all look like? So I'm very interested in online iterations of shopping, retail, and how that merges with offline. You know, I feel like it's 1996 and someone just talked about, (laughs) you know, shopping online, AOL. Everyone's like, oh, what's this? That's kind of what I feel like with the metaverse right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's in its uh, early stages, but I I, I agree with you. I think it's going to, it's going to definitely play a part in our lives. So as we understand it more and as more people understand it, I definitely think it's going to be you know, something that's weaved in for sure. 100%. Etha, that was a wealth of information. Thank you so much for taking uh, some time with us today. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners will as well. You are such a dream. I'm so glad that we were able to have this chit chat. And uh, I can't wait to see what kind of kicks you get on the metaverse. I'm, I have my eye on a pair of Dior Birkenstocks myself. <laughs> that, sounds, uh, that sounds exotic. Dior Birkenstocks. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you much again, Nita, and I will talk to you soon. 